You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Kane, Kenway, Hefe, Jennings, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Deck, Antonio, The Pirate Nopales, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Have you ever watched any of those videos in which Irish people try weird food from around the world? I did recently, and something stuck out to me. Many of the people on that show aren't really used to Mexican food. I mean, they know what it is, they've had Mexican food, but it's still just a little exotic. Sort of how, for some Americans... A good Indian curry might be a little bit exciting, but on the other hand, going out for tamales isn't exactly exotic to most of us. Delicious, yeah, but not exotic. On the inverse, for people in the British Isles, grabbing a curry is an absolutely everyday affair. I suppose it's all about empire. You know, the British occupied Ireland and India, so Ireland has curry. A large part of the U.S. was once the region of New Spain called Mexico, so we have tamales. And in researching today's show, I noticed something else, specifically about names. Due almost entirely to Spanish imperialism, I have an easier time with Filipino names than I do with some of the names on that YouTube channel. I don't speak a word of Filipino or a word of Gaelic, but while I can't pronounce half of those Irish names, I'm relatively comfortable with a number of Filipino names. The official language of the Philippines, Filipino, is distinct from most of its neighboring languages thanks to Spanish influence. They write in Latin script as opposed to their ancient script thanks to Spanish influence. Many indigenous names of peoples and places have been lost thanks to Spanish influence. Today we're looking at the dawn of that influence through the lens of Ferdinand Magellan. This is episode 121, The Winds of Fate. 
Magellan's departure from Guam was a chaotic affair. In their raid to reclaim their stolen property from the Comoro, they killed a number of men. Antonio Pigefetta, the chronicler of the voyage of Magellan, writes, quote, We saw some of the women who cried out and tore their hair. I believe it was for the love of those we had killed. End quote. Over 100 Comoro proas chased after the departing ships, and they sped by at amazing speeds. They moved in and around the hulls of Ferdinand Magellan's vessels and threw rocks at the crew, and they hit a number of the crewmen, and they moved too fast for Magellan to get any shots off at them. Eventually, though, Magellan was too far out to sea, and the Komodo proas turned back. Magellan plunged back into the unknown reaches of the ocean. A few days later, Lookout spotted several islands in quick succession and stopped at the smallest island in view. Considering their experience with the Komoro, Magellan wanted an uninhabited island. The men were weak with hunger and scurvy. Magellan sent the strongest among them ashore to gather what food they could. Lawrence Burgreen writes in Over the Edge of the World, quote, It was the fifth Sunday in Lent, with Easter fast approaching. Appropriately, Lent is dedicated to Lazarus, risen from the dead and like him the surviving crew members had overcome their illness to regain their strength and persevere. End quote. Magellan actually named these islands after Lazarus, but that name didn't stick. And Magellan didn't stick around either. They made for another island that had a much more suitable anchorage where they could make landfall and, finally, blessedly, rest. They erected tents on shore and collected fruit and slept for days, now, Magellan didn't really know where he was. He suspected he might be in the Spice Islands. He wasn't, but he wasn't far off. After about a week, though, they were approached by a small fleet of proas. Now, these proa were clearly of a different design than those from Guam, but Magellan was wary. He armed the men, and they drew up battle lines. A group of local men made landfall and kept their distance. But Magellan, well, first of all, Magellan had a companion with him, known to history as Enrique of Malacca. Enrique had been Magellan's slave since his first voyage to the East Indies under the Portuguese India Armada. Magellan purchased Enrique after he aided in the conquest of Malacca. Enrique spoke Malaysian, but he also spoke the languages of the Spice Islands, the new arrivals spoke a number of different tongues as well, but regardless of what languages they all tried, they didn't find any common language between them. Magellan's hopes were dashed. They weren't in the Spice Islands after all. Still, though, everyone was friendly enough. These men turned out to be fishermen who brought their catch ashore, and along with a few jugs of coconut wine, they held a little cookout. The following day, Magellan... Well, he took these new arrivals out to his ship and decided to be a bit daring. Last time he tried something like this, the locals stole everything that they could lay their hands on, the Comoro people. But these fishermen were less impetuous. Magellan showed them his bags of nutmeg and pepper and mace. The visitors grew excited and took Magellan on deck, and they pointed to the south. And we know today, of course, that that's right toward the Spice Islands. A few days later, the fishermen left, and Magellan prepared to set sail. But the question remained, where was he going to go? Magellan was still 
unsure where he was, but he was starting to suspect. Now, no Europeans had ever been to these islands before, but they were a known factor. They had heard of them from Chinese and Arabian traders. And right now might be the best place to talk about a little bit of geography. If you sail west from Guam, you'll find the Philippines. That's where Magellan was at this point. South of the Philippines, you'll find Malacu, or we might know them as the Moluccas or the Spice Islands. That's where Magellan was aiming. These two groups of islands, the Moluccas and the Philippines, as well as the Marianas Islands, comprise what the conquistadors considered the Philippines, what we would call the Spanish East Indies. However, today, the Moluccas are part of Indonesia. The Indonesian islands that will eventually become key to our story include Borneo to the west of the Moluccas, Java to the southwest, and Sumatra further west than Borneo. Now, those are eventually going to be under Portuguese control. To the northwest, we see mainland Southeast Asia. Myanmar, Malaysia, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Thailand. They would have called it Siam back then, but that's a whole other bag of colonialist cats that we don't need to talk about. Nor do we need to talk about what's in the southeast. We'll get to that later. Many of the crew expected Magellan to sail south for the Spice Islands, but instead, Magellan set a westward route after the way that the fishermen had gone. After two days of sailing, they saw an island that appeared to be glowing. They were campfires. Magellan, though, chose to stay at sea. He didn't know who that fire actually belonged to. Come morning, a canoe rode out to meet Magellan. They hailed him. And to the surprise of everyone on board, Enrique of Malacca responded, He could talk to these sailors, which suggests that Enrique had been here before, or at least somewhere nearby. And that means that Enrique of Malacca was probably the first human being ever to circumnavigate the earth. But about two hours later, after the men in the canoe rowed back to shore, two larger ships set sail out to meet Magellan. On the larger of these two, sat an imperious-looking man under a canopy of large leaves. Now this imperious-looking man brought gifts to Magellan, gifts which Magellan wisely and politely declined. He turned out to be a Hindu leader named Raja Kolambu. Kolambu was under the authority of the Maharaja back in India. At This time in our story, there were four major powers in this region, in what we would call the Philippines. China had substantial trade interests in the region, in the Philippines and the Spice Islands. Their primary trading partners were the Hindu Rajanates, including this of Raja Kolambu. Now, sometimes the Rajanates were allies, and sometimes they were rivals, But at this point in the story, they were close allies against the newest players in the region, the Arabian Islamic Sultanates. And then there were the Datu. They were the traditional, indigenous leaders of the Philippines. Now all of these powers, the Sultanates, the Rajanates, the Chinese, and the Datu, were all in this dance of warfare and diplomacy and economic superiority. They'd been at it for centuries now, and whoever sat on top at any given time controlled the spice trade. 
And then there were the Portuguese. Now, the Portuguese weren't in the Philippines yet, but they were busy circling the Spice Islands like hungry sharks. The primary Portuguese colony in the Southeast Asian region was Malacca. That's in modern-day Malaysia. Ferdinand Magellan and Francisco Sorau were involved in that conquest. That's when Ferdinand Magellan bought Enrique. The Portuguese also had outposts in Java, Borneo, Siam, and even in China. They'd been busy. But then Magellan arrived in the Philippines at the head of a Spanish fleet heralding the Spanish arrival. According to Antonio Pigafetta, and really most of this is according to Pigafetta, Magellan and Raja Colombo met on Good Friday 1521. I'm going to play it safe here and decline to say where it is they met. The location is disputed, and it's a point of pride for many Filipino people. The most likely possibility is a small island that was used as a trading post between the Rajanates and the Chinese. On Good Friday, they held a great feast under Raja Colombo. The Raja, Antonio Pigafetta, Magellan, and Enrique all shared a ceremonial cup of wine, which bound them together as friends. The following day, Holy Saturday, or Hallelujah Saturday, according to the Portuguese, Magellan and Raja Colombo held a different kind of ceremony. They rolled up their right sleeves, cut a slash into their forearm, and held those cuts together. They blended their heart's blood, binding them as brothers. And then the next day, on Easter, 1521, the voyage's resident priest held the first mass ever in the Philippines. In that ceremony, Raja Colombo was baptized. The symbolism here is impossible to ignore. This was the Spanish Empire reborn after the Reconquista, or maybe it's the rebirth of the Filipino people in the light of Christ. There are a ton of potential interpretations, and usually that would make me suspicious of the date, but they appear to be accurate. And there is something more here. Easter is a celebration of literal rebirth, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But in the time before Christ, people still celebrated rebirth at almost the exact same time right around the spring equinox. That was a celebration of the rebirth of the sun, a celebration of spring and the rebirth of life to the world. It was a fertility festival, and similar festivals are still held around the world. The deities worshipped in these fertility festivals were almost always feminine and almost always voluptuous. There's a reason that people hunt chocolate eggs brought by a bunny at Easter. Neither eggs nor bunnies have anything to do with the rebirth of Jesus Christ, but both are ancient symbols of sex and fertility. And, you know, chocolate's pretty sexy as well. Of old, those voluptuous feminine deities were worshipped on the equinox with uninhibited sex. I bring this all up because of the tenor of the feast held on Easter Sunday, 1521, in the Philippines. Magellan placed a moratorium on sex with any non-Christians by anyone in his voyage. 
Pijafeta tells us that the men complied with that order, but it became a strained thing. I mean, the men were chomping at the bit here. They hadn't seen women for months, and now all of these lovely islander women were... Well, they were clearly interested in the newcomers. So Magellan spoke to the Raja Kalambu, who agreed that all of the women would convert to Catholicism along with him. The celebrations that ensued were distinctly pagan. Magellan, though, didn't take part in any of that. Instead, Raja Kalambu confessed his troubles to Magellan, troubles that included two other political groups in the region. The first of these was the Raja Humaban, who was the real Hindu power in the Philippines. He was the Raja and Datu of the island of Cebu. The Raja native Cebu was old. It dated back to the 13th century, so almost 200 years. They were powerful as well, and favored in the eyes of the Maharaja. Now, technically, Raja Humaban and Raja Kolambu were equals, but practically speaking, Kolambu was a vassal of Raja Humaban, and the Datu of Cebu had given Kolambu a job, and that job involved the second faction that was giving Kolambu trouble that was giving Magellan's new brother in blood and Christ trouble. The second faction were the Islamic Arabian powers in the Philippines. They held territory to the north, which was disrupting trade between the Rajanates and the Chinese. Magellan made a decision here, a decision that his crew didn't understand and didn't particularly care for. It's a decision that historians have debated for centuries now. After their Easter celebrations, the men all wanted to sail south to find the Spice Islands. You know, maybe they could establish diplomatic ties. Maybe they could build a factory and an embassy. What they would do without question was to fill their holds with spices. That was going to make them rich. That's why they were here. But instead of that practical decision, Ferdinand Magellan chose to honor his new brother and sail west for Cebu and the Raja Humabon. His plan appears to have been to introduce himself to Raja Humaban to pay his respects, maybe gather some troops and supplies, and sail out to make war on the nearby Islamic power. His reasoning in doing so is most often given as religious zeal. He would be aiding what he saw as crypto-Christians. Remember, Hinduism wasn't really understood. He would be aiding them in a war against Islam. After all, this was a Spanish voyage, and that's basically their mission statement. There's a lot of merit to that analysis, and certainly some truth. But I do want to share Lawrence Bergreen's thoughts on the issue. He writes, quote, They were beginning to savor the available women, exotic food, and tantalizing hints of the Spice Islands. Yet a shadow hung over Magellan. Even if the rest of the expedition went flawlessly, there would be hell to pay when he returned to Spain for marooning Cartagena and the priest. He could never return home with honor, and so he pressed on, a fugitive from society and a captive to the winds of fate. The ramifications of that analysis are interesting. It makes me think that perhaps Magellan thought to set himself up as a ruler, victor over the Muslims who would be king and benevolently welcome the Portuguese to his domain once his cousin Francisco Sorau arrived. That's an interesting bit of alternative history. I mean, what if Magellan had succeeded? 
He might have been able to set the Philippines up to defend themselves against the incoming forces of Spain and Portugal, and perhaps Spain and Portugal would have been happy to have a regional ruler there who was friendly with them. Magellan, when he arrived on Cebu, was welcomed by Raja Humabon. He made his intentions clear. His plan was to oust the caliphs from the Philippines for good. That was music to Humabon's ears. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change. But it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Humabon agreed to be baptized and was christened Don Carlos, Captain General of Spain. This made him, as far as Spanish military rank was concerned, an equal to Ferdinand Magellan. Humabon was happy for the new allies, and he gave Magellan all of the gifts that seemed to be traditional. After he was baptized, the women in his harem were baptized as well and made available to the men under Magellan's command. They were given food and feasts and celebrated throughout his domain. But the Raja was skeptical. So Magellan prepared a grand display of European military prowess. He fired off his guns, he marched his men in parade, and they held an impromptu fencing competition. Humabon was duly impressed, but Magellan went ahead and did him one better. The people of the Philippines, of Cebu at least, had a much more decentralized form of government. They had their own regional chieftains, but very little centralized power. There was the Raja, but the regional chiefs didn't exactly respect that authority. It reminds me of England and the wake of the Norman Conquest. You have all of these regional warlords who were having trouble adjusting to the new feudal structure. 
Magellan encouraged some of those leaders to follow a more Spanish, feudal form of government. He converted them and convinced them to properly swear fealty to King Don Carlos. So why was Magellan doing all this? Well, he learned that Raja Humaban didn't have a son. His nephew was the heir presumptive, but that wasn't a certainty. Magellan consolidated Humaban's power through himself. That would put him in a perfect position to serve as a sort of viceroy, and then, once the Raja died, to take command as king of the Philippines. However, one of the regional leaders resisted Ferdinand Magellan. When King Don Carlos sent word that he required a tribute, this leader didn't send the food that was to aid Magellan in the upcoming war. His name was Chief Lapu-Lapu of Mactan Island. Lapu-Lapu had always been troublesome. The Mactan people were indigenous people who had always resisted the Rajanate's control. Their island was just off the coast of Cebu. Lapu-Lapu the Raja explained, was always a thorn in his side. He was powerless to handle them. I mean, it's not like the people of Mactan Island were powerful or anything, but Humaban's people were indigenous as well. They were related to the people of Mactan. They didn't want to fight them. It's embarrassing, really. But a man like Magellan, a man who so clearly had such power at his fingertips, and Humaban had heard the women in his harem discuss the strength of the Europeans, well... Lapu-Lapu and the people of Mactan would be nothing compared to that. Were Magellan to take care of that little thorn on Mactan Island, Humaban could devote his full resources to aiding Magellan in his quest. And with Lapu-Lapu gone, Mactan Island would be in need of a new ruler, wouldn't it? Magellan prepared his ships and his men and sailed for Mactan Island. On the night of 27th April, Magellan arrived. Pijafetta writes of that arrival, quote, At midnight, sixty of us set out armed with corselets and helmets, together with the Christian king, by which he means Humaban, the prince, by which he means Columbu, and some of the chief men. We reached Mactan three hours before dawn. The captain, Magellan, did not wish to fight, but sent a message to the natives to the effect that if they would obey the king of Spain, recognize the Christian king as their sovereign, and pay us our tribute, he would be their friend. If they wished otherwise, he goes on, they should wait to see how our lances wounded. They replied that if we had lances, they had lances of bamboo and stakes hardened with fire. They said that in order to induce us to go in search of them, for they had dug certain pit holes filled with spikes between the houses in order that we might fall into them. End quote. I said last time that we would be discussing the most famous of the three classic blunders. Most of you, I hope, understood that reference, but if you didn't, allow me to explain. When the dread pirate Roberts returned from the sea to claim the hand of his one true love, Buttercup, he found her engaged to the evil prince. Beyond that, he found her kidnapped. In his quest to find his one true love, he climbed the cliffs of despair. He fought a duel and defeated a giant. And then he matched wits with a cunning Sicilian. The Sicilian, believing the dread pirate Roberts defeated, told him, You've fallen prey to one of the three classic blunders. The most famous is never get involved in a land war in Asia. But we all understand that reference, right? 
It's never a good idea to explain a joke, so allow me to explain that joke. The U.S., for example, has gotten involved in four major land wars in Asia. The first was the American War in the Philippines, which did not go well for the United States. The second was the Pacific Theater of World War II, which was not going well for the Allied forces. The third was, of course, the Korean War, which did not go well for the United States. And the fourth was the war in Vietnam, which did not go well for the United States. Never get involved in a land war in Asia because, for example, they dug certain pit holes filled with spikes between the houses in order that we might fall into them. Their tactics didn't change because you don't need to fix that which is not broken. Of course, the second most famous of the three classic blunders is never to go against a Sicilian when death is on the line. Unfortunately, Magellan did not have a Sicilian. He had a Venetian, Antonio Pigafetta, but that's just not the same thing. And we really can't take everything that Pigafetta tells us at face value. For example, he tells us that Magellan armed and armored 49 men. That's true, but then there were the 400 or so converted locals that he also had on his side. Then Pijafetta tells us that Lapu-Lapu had more than 1,500 men on his side. That is almost certainly an exaggeration. But even still, Magellan was far outnumbered. But he had another even bigger problem. There was a reef surrounding Mactan Island that would prevent his ships from getting in close to shore. Pijafetta describes it as more than two crossbow shots' lengths. That's out of range for the harquebus that Magellan had on his ships. And remember, they didn't really have muskets. Reliable muskets were still decades off. They had a few harquebus that the men could carry, but mostly they had crossbows. So 49 men in breastplates and those Spanish conquistador helmets carrying spears and crossbows and the harquebus jumped into thigh-deep water to trudge over rocks and reef toward a shore that was occupied by three columns of warriors. Warriors that had sharpened bamboo spears who were expert fishermen with excellent aim. Naturally, the superior discipline and skill at arms of the Spanish and Portuguese soldiers led them to a swift and absolute victory. I'm just messing with you. You know, I was going to play the clip from The Princess Bride, but instead... I wanted to use this clip. The Mactan warriors rained spears down on the Spanish. There was a separate raid that did make it to shore that raided the Mactan village, but they were pretty swiftly defeated. But the main battle was here at the shoreline. The helmets and the breastplates of the Spanish did some good against the spears and arrows, but their legs were vulnerable. Plus, remember, they were wearing full boots, so it's not like they were moving very fast in the thigh-high water. Once the Mactan realized that the Spanish were slow and that their legs were vulnerable, once Magellan and his fifty or so men turned around and were retreating, the Mactan charged. They charged into the water without heavy boots or breastplates, they wanted to engage the Spanish in hand-to-hand combat. Try to put yourself in that situation. Imagine that you're wearing heavy armor and leather boots that are filled with water. You're trying to wade through treacherous reef when spears come hurtling down at you. Maybe one of those spears is suddenly sticking through the throat of the guy standing next to you. He falls into the water. 
The water is filling with his blood. Your commander gives the order to retreat, but you can barely move. However you try, there's a dark-haired islander girl waiting for you. You're going to make it back to her, but then you feel a searing pain. You look down and there's a spear sticking through your leg. Then you hear a wild battle cry. You look behind you and you see 1,000 almost nude, crazy buff warriors rushing into the sea. To his credit here, Magellan rallied the men to defend the retreat. They fired a volley of small arms and crossbow bolts. And it worked. The Mactan fell back. But imagine trying to reload a musket. A six-foot-long muzzle loader. And you're in thigh-deep water. Imagine trying to load a bolt into a crossbow. There's a decent chance that the crossbow is wet and useless. As wet and useless as your musket. And the Mactan realized it. They charged again. Magellan called for spears and swords and turned to face the incoming charge. According to legend, Lapu-Lapu himself led the Mactan charge. He's been lionized in Filipino myth for what followed. According to Pijafetta, quote, Recognizing the captain, so many turned upon Magellan that they knocked his helmet off his head twice, an Indian hurled a bamboo spear into the captain's face, but the latter immediately killed him with his lance, which he left in the Indian's body. Then, trying to lay hand on sword, he could draw it out but halfway, because he had been wounded in the arm with a bamboo spear. When the natives saw that, they all rushed themselves upon him. One of them wounded him on the left leg with a large cutlass. That caused the captain to fall face downward. They rushed upon him with iron and bamboo spears until they killed our mirror, our light, our comfort, and our true guide. When they wounded him, he turned back many times to see whether we were all in the boats. Thereupon, beholding him dead, we, wounded, retreated as best we could. End quote. All Magellan's plans died with him in the waters of Mactan Island. The Mactan chieftain, Lapu-Lapu, today is a hero of the Filipino people. A folk hero, a mythological hero almost. He's the first native Filipino to successfully resist European colonial aggression. In that respect, he's an Alfred the Great or George Washington to the people of the Philippines. Amazingly, maybe less than a dozen Spaniards were killed in the battle. Close to 150 of the converts died in that tertiary battle on land, and no reliable numbers exist for Mactan casualties, but it was low. There was a clause in Magellan's will that Enrique of Malacca be set free at the time of his death. However, after the death of Magellan, his brother-in-law and his cousin were voted the commanders of the fleet, and they decided they needed an interpreter so they decided to ignore that clause that Enrique be set free. Now remember that the men had been preparing for a life here, perhaps on Mactan Island with women and wives. But more than anyone, the Malaysian interpreter Enrique had grown close to Raja Humaban. He was, after all, a neighbor of his. Together, those two organized a feast for the Portuguese leaders of the fleet. Magellan's brother-in-law and cousin Juan Sarau among them. 
All of the Portuguese officers were invited into the Raja's palace to enjoy his food and his women and his wine as a celebration of their brave showing in the battle. And they had that food, and they had that wine fed to them by beautiful women, and more wine and more wine, until the time was deemed right and the Raja's agents locked the doors. Twenty-seven men were killed that night, and Enrique of Malacca was set free. At this point he disappears from our story, but presumably he returned home and lived a long and happy life. Juan Sarao, however, was left alive. He was the top-ranking officer, and he was brought to the docks where he begged the entirely Spanish crewmen to pay a ransom for his release. Sarao and the Raja and his agents waited, and they waited, and then they watched while the ships weighed anchor and sailed away. Pijafetta doesn't say what happened to Juan Sarao, but he was never heard from again. There was a bit of drama in the following weeks, but eventually the Spanish convict and one-time mutineer Juan Sebastian Elcano was voted in as commander of the voyage. Today, the voyage is properly called the Magellan-Elcano Circumnavigation. Eventually, the fleet did reach the Spice Islands, and there they engaged in a touch of piracy. However, it's not the cool kind of piracy. They weren't raiding ships to take their gold and nutmeg or anything like that. It was more of the our-ships-are-leaking-and-we're-out-of-food kind of piracy. But don't worry we will get a solid dose of proper piracy next time. In the end, the voyage did make it back. However, only 18 men made it back to Seville. That's out of the total of 237 that set out from Spain more than two years prior. Really, the voyage wasn't much of a success, financially or imperially, but it did prove that the voyage could be made. Over the next couple of decades, Spain secured her control over the Americas. Francis Drake successfully made the circumnavigation using much better wind patterns, and eventually that trans-oceanic highway was used for Spain to establish their region of New Spain, officially called the Philippines. We're not really going to spend any time on that story. In case it hasn't become clear... I enjoy stories of explorers, but not particularly stories of conquistadors. Next time, we're going to be back with William Dampier and Charles Swan and the crew of the Signet. We're going to, finally, be looking at some good old-fashioned piracy as well. Piracy in a new world, at least a world new to our story, the world created by explorers like Ferdinand Magellan. And we're going to introduce a new kind of pirate, at least a new kind of thief and villain, the corporate kind. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everyone who has helped to support the show. Everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon. Everybody who has left us a review or a rating wherever you listen to the show. And everybody who has recommended this show, online or in real life. All of you make this show possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. 
After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.